Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I didn't have any kind of aspirations to um, to be heard by so many people so many times for so long. That wasn't the plan. <laughs> You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Recording in progress. Got Robin it. Scott, M, welcome. This is a, this is a great pleasure because um, you have meant something, you know, in my life. And I always love to meet people who have had, you know, an impact um, musically on, on my life. So, first of all, thank you for that. That's um, very flattering. I want to start with with your background and ask you, in terms of your family, what sort of creative atmosphere were you brought up in as a child, if any? Oh, okay. <clears throat> well, my mother was um, a dancer, and um, yeah, she had a sort of professional c- career for a while um, in the. I'm just thinking of the, the post-war years, and. Um, my father, he was a fighter pilot, so um, he was a pilot. So that that was the background. But my <clears throat> my grandfather was um, both a pianist and an opera singer. So that's the kind of creative lineage, if you like. <laughs> well, I think it shows something that I mean. I think you know, in terms of my family, there it there was no weight put on a sort of creative life in any sense. It was right. more like find something where you can earn money, not mm. something where you could have a, a creative output that actually might fulfill you. Did they? Did they? You know, look at creativity as fulfillment in in some way. I think my mother did in particular. In particular, um, my father. I think he, yeah, he's kind of engaged with the um, creative process sort of later in his life, but. Um, I think he was preoccupied with sort of 
bringing bread to the table. So how did they feel when you decided you wanted to go to art college? Was that for them a natural, well, for your mother in particular, a natural process? Yeah, that was okay. Both of them were like that. They were supportive in that way. Uh, I was already painting and I think um, they knew that really I was kind of resigned to that particular path. When you got to art college, did you have, was your teacher a mentor? And can you remember what sort of input this teacher had upon your life? Um, well, there was one tutor in particular called John Hoyland, who um, became quite a renowned artist in his own right, apart from being um, a tutor at an art college. And um, yeah, he wasn't that communicative, but um, there was something about him which kind of I connected with. And I guess, you know, he was in a sense a, a mentor, if you like. Can you sort of define a bit more about what, what connected you to him? Well, his work, for, for for starters. I mean, I was pretty impressed with his work. His work was, um, how should I explain that? Well, well, he was an, an abstract painter, but um, he used to work on very large canvases, huge fields of colour. and He was just um, yeah, a very thoughtful character. And there's an interesting film which um, the BBC did on his life and his work, and it showed him actively you know working in the studio and he would stand back and kind of meditate on what he was doing for hours he was a very thoughtful character he wasn't very public but um sadly he's no longer with us because i did a few years back i did try and contact him but unfortunately he'd already been and gone did he sort of also give you a wider perspective on the world in terms of art and um you know, I think one of the things, that especially is when, when we're very young, is that we, we're often very enclosed in our own bubble. And then along comes someone and opens the door to a wider world. Was he that figure for you? It was quite a restless period. This was 68. Um, and, um, yeah, we were kind of reacting against the system. And at one stage we had what we call the um, sit-in, which was basically we, <laughs> we weren't going to leave the college and we stayed there for several days. That was quite interesting. But there you know, were some interesting characters that I met at that time. Yeah, I want to come to that. I mean, one thing, when I was a teacher, I was 13 in 1972, and Bowie, who I know that uh, you, you've known in your life, Bowie for me represented more than someone who just made music. Because I was a, a, a gay teenager and felt very alien to my society, Bowie provided, in a sense, a world where I could belong. Right. Was, there, was there an artist or a type of music? I mean, you, you, you know, you're mentioning 68, so I sort of, my head goes to a certain type of music. But was there an artist or a type of music that also opened a world to you where you felt you could belong and maybe you didn't feel that you belonged in your parents' world? Um, yeah, I'm just thinking the the kind of artists that I was attracted to then were, for the most part, lyricists, Leonard Cohen and Dylan and, you know, um, a string of others in that field. That was the, I was drawn to the kind of, um, you know, the folk movement, Joan Bias. 
Yeah, I mean, when we talk about Joan Baez, obviously the you know the civil rights movement with Dylan yeah. and and so on and so forth. So this is something which was you know uh, coming to the fore, you know, sixty eight definitely at that time. And um, so this was this was for you the world that you felt you were part of, something that was part of change. Is that how you? Is that the right description? Yes, definitely. Yeah, that was the case. Yeah, and. Um... Yeah, I was drawn to the idea of being able to express oneself, um, whether it was in poetry or in song. So that was kind of, I was in between the two disciplines, you know, painting and music. But I never, I don't think, yeah, I think it was a kind of natural um, transition between one, between the other. So I was doing both. I mean, you mentioned that you meant uh, that you met some interesting characters at uh, art college. One of whom was Malcolm McLaren, and yeah. you know, Malcolm McLaren, like you, had a huge impact on popular culture. But what was your thinking at the time? Were you were you were you sort of planning? You know what I mean? Were you thinking, "I wanted I want to change the, the the world in terms of." of what you did musically which was you know bringing a whole different style of music into the into the 80s and what mclaren obviously did with the with the sex pistols yeah i don't think there was ever a plan i think it was the general feeling was um wanting to challenge convention and be an activist in that sense and um you know the to destroy something, to create something new. That was very much the kind of chaotic sort of uh, thinking of the time. Is that what connected you to McLaren? Because when you say that, you know, like to destruct something, to make something new, uh, that's, you know, that is very McLaren, isn't it? So was that what connected you, this thinking? Yeah, I think we were, <clears throat> we were on the same page. That was it really. And, um, yeah, we spent a lot of time together and he was, um, yeah, he was both a source of inspiration and um, a, a great person to spend time with. I mean, he was fun. You know, he had a great sense of humour and um, it was uh, it was interesting on a, you know, on many levels. I mean, people often talk about what they got from other people in, in terms of people would ask you, what did you learn from McLaren? But I'd like to know what you feel McLaren may have learned from you. Well, I used to challenge what uh, he had to say and what he thought, and, and he would do likewise. And so we were, in a sense, sort of at college, sparring partners in, in that way. And uh, I mean, I was already drawn to music at that stage. He didn't kind of show that much interest in that respect but um he was he's very much um engaged with the history of art and i think i found that quite um interesting because i didn't feel it, the academic side of the course that we were on was something that i was particularly drawn to but i was more interested in creating a mess in the studio with the paint <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that because I think later in your in your career, the way that your career has gone and the way that you have been involved in different styles and tried new things throughout your life, 
um, shows a deep interest, I think, in the history of particularly popular culture and music culture. Well, I don't think um, it would have been impossible not to have been impressed and influenced by what was going on in the mainstream of popular music when I was growing up. Um, I was very much conscious of uh, the songs of the time. And, um, yeah, I mean, all of that um, influenced where I was going. There's no doubt about it. I mean, one of the, the, you know, you meant, well, we talked about Bowie earlier and you played uh, with Bowie um, as well when he was in his sort of folk um, sort of inspired that's right. Era. Can you tell me a little bit about that and uh what what was he like? Because he was on the he was on the search for David Bowie in a sense, wasn't he? At that yeah. period. <clears throat> well, at that time, I think that was in the you know, quite early days. We were performing around the, the folk circuit, the clubs. And um there was a club that was in um Soho in London, which um I think it was called Les Cousins, and uh on the bill that night, I was on the bill, he was, and Ralph McTell. And uh, yeah, I kind of vividly remember at that time, he was covering songs and he covered a song by the Bee Gees. And I found that quite amusing. And I had songs which I was preparing for my first album. And um, anyway, so the evening was was very pleasant, very kind of laid back, you know, typical sort of, um, I wouldn't say it was intellectual. I would say it was more of a yeah, grassroots singer-songwriter scenario. And, uh, yeah, at the end of the evening, he said that um, he was starting a, a club in uh, South London. Uh, called, it, was, it was described as an arts laboratory. This was in Beckenham, South London. And um, he asked me if I'd like to come down and join him. So, um, yeah, that on many occasions I went to that club and I, I was playing with another another musician working with me and we appeared, appeared there quite a few times. And David was there for, yeah, for a lot of the time. But then he started taking his small PA and, and touring as well. And he was just beginning to get traction on um, his uh, music of, of that period, which was good. But yeah, he was interesting company. I mean, I, I interviewed Tony Visconti once and he was telling me about when they lived in, uh, I think they lived in Beckenham, I think it was there. Right. Uh, and um, they, uh, Visconti lived in the same house and he said that uh, Bowie would imbue everything from everybody and that he would, you know, he, he anything that was sort of in development, he would practice at home. So he would go to the fridge to get the milk and, and do a sort of mime on the way to the fridge. So it's like everything was incorporated in, into his daily life, which eventually uh, went into his performance. Were you someone that actually also was so aware of all the people around you that you would also look for things that may influence you at that time? Well, I think so. I think it's a kind of natural sort of way to evolve you know you're going to be rubbing shoulders with other peers who um have also have the, you know who um progress and 
um, absorb. And uh, that's, I think we were sort of naturally doing that, all of us. And uh, there was another artist, of course, you would know, Mark Boland at the time. Uh, he was um, a pretty extraordinary character too. And he was, he kind of got off the ground quite quickly. And he was had um, good fortune to be having the support of, of John Peel. And uh, yeah, at that time, John Peel was a very influential character in the scene. And I think he was They always talk about this they're sort of it's like living in a smaller community like living in a bubble within the wider bubble <laughs> and this was a um a, this sort of creative bubble was was a sort of fascinating part of that era which is a difference to today um how do you look back and see that era in terms of being a melting pot where so many people came out of and who had so much impact on the world of music well, it's interesting because at that time, of course, we didn't have, you know, we're in the sort of extraordinary era now of communications. And um, it's so the community is unlimited, it's global. Um, but I think at that time, it was really dependent. You know, we didn't um, have the immediate means of communicating with each other so easily. So it was like a bus ride or whatever to a club or so it was kind of a, it was a smaller circle. But it was um, it was probably a lot larger than we imagined. But one could only kind of become connected to the epicenter of that. You know, in physical terms, it wasn't it wasn't easy to to reach out in the same way. You know, we had there was the music press that would kind of to some degree give us some idea of what was happening elsewhere, and um, there was pirate radio too. But apart from that, it was quite limited to, you know, reaching out wasn't the same as it is now. It's a very different situation. So, um, yeah, I guess, you know, it, the transition is, it's, it's an incredible flip since, you know, we've kind of entered into this, the information age, as we call it. And so you've got to be so much, I mean, filtering now is the issue, having the ability to filter and, as it were, kind of connect with what you feel makes sense to you. I mean, because it's just, we can be so easily overexposed and that is um, something to contend with now. You know, it's, it's information overload. I mean, you say about the, the connection uh, today, and I fully uh, appreciate that, that we, we're so interconnected. But back then, um, I think it was easier to just go out and get things like, you know, you could actually encounter someone and then, you know, be working with them. And that happened to you quite a lot, didn't it? You, you seem to have a real go getting um, side to you where, where you would uh, put yourself in a situation where you may be uh, working with Ralph Mattel, uh, Mattel, for example, or, or people like that. Yeah, I think we're, we were motivated by curiosity more than anything. Uh, certainly I was, and I was interested in traveling too. So, 
you know, I found myself in the early stages kind of busking on the streets of Europe, which was quite an education in itself. In what way was it an education? Well, because, you know, obviously when you travel, it's always it's always a very stimulating experience to travel anywhere. And the, the challenges that come with that, you can't possibly survive unless you engage with people around you. And maybe by chance or by choice, we meet people who can change um, the road we take. Another way that, that the road we take can be changed is by certain decisions that we make when we're offered things. And McLaren and Vivian Westwood wanted you to be involved in their empire building at uh, that early early stage, but you declined. Immediately after um, the college episode, or I think we might still have been at college, we were actually living together in, in Clapham. And um, so then the the idea was germinating in in Malcolm's mind to have a store on the King's Road. And they were producing the, the content for the store. For the most part, the original material was back at the flat. So it was, yeah, I mean, I, I, we on a day-to-day -day basis for a while, I was helping, as it were, to put all this together. And um, it wasn't until later when... I think um, Malcolm was thinking of making some kind of investment and asked me if I would wanted to come in and um, be a partner to that. But I was kind of mindful of my own aspirations in the music. <laughs> so I kind of declined on that basis that it really wasn't for me to kind of... Um, yeah, dilute my my interests too much. Yeah, did it actually help you by making that sort of decision? Because in a sense, it in a sense by him asking you to be involved, it focused you on what you wanted. Yeah, I guess that was probably so. Um, you know, it, we still kept in touch. I mean, you know, it was all the way through up until the time when you know he got to the stage where I think. He found it quite difficult and unrewarding to continue with um, the pistols. And um, I mean, I joined joined them on their last tour with Julian Temple, who was filming it. And uh, then there was an, another band that came into the picture, the all-girl band, The Slits. And they wanted... Malcolm just sprinkled the same kind of stardust on them, but he were—he kind of had enough at that stage. And that's when, you know, he asked me if I would be interested in producing a live um, performance of them in Paris. So, yeah, I mean, I, for me at that point, it was seemed like a good idea because I'd already started producing other acts and I had my own label and, so in the um, in that sense, um, it looked like um, an interesting proposition. So then I went to Paris, got involved with that, and then I started living in Paris, and then I met somebody who I live with, and <laughs> it's, 
it's difficult to kind of compress all this into a few minutes. It's quite a big story. But um, then um, there was this connection with um, Barclay Records, which um, was the company of Eddie Barclay, who was an eccentric uh, impresario. And uh, he was also, his company that is, distributing the pistols in France. So once again, you know, I was kind of spending time. I mean, I was crossing Malcolm's path all the time. We were always sort of kind of, we kept in touch, whatever was happening. So um, I've forgotten your question now. <laughs> well, well, I started back with McLaren, but I think, you know, in Paris was a sort of, um, in France was a key point in the development of M, wasn't it? Yes. It was, it was the, the key. So maybe you could tell me about how that came about. I started producing for Barclay Records. I was producing some French acts and um, also some acts that had come from New um, Eastern Europe. And uh, so I was kind of frequenting studios there and I got to know engineers. And it was about the time that I had did the um, production of that live record recording with the slits that occurred to me, maybe I should get back on the other side again and, you know, go down the artist route rather than just producing. And uh, I secured downtime at the studios where I was producing other acts. And that was really the beginning of um if you like the the m episode was that where you recorded moderna man that's it modern man yeah yeah that's right there the, i read that you met um an hungarian communist intellectual there called gregor oh, yeah. davidoff oh Who, right okay well i was going to mention that but i did i thought it was a bit a bit obscure but yeah they were i understood that there were some issues with uh, them seeking asylum in France. And I found them very interesting. And I started to produce some of Gregor's material. I don't think it was really going to ever enter into the idea of Eddie Barclay's mainstream of popular music, but he had a very interesting catalogue, actually, Eddie Barclay. They, Barclay Records was, because they had a, a sort of an element which would loosely describe as world music. So that was a, an interesting um, label, for sure. Um, yeah, so yeah, we, we all had those kind of, if you like, those intellectual discussions of the time um, I wouldn't say that we were being, you know, anyway, really radical or radicalized. It was just a matter of kind of pontificating about possibilities in the creative revolution. <laughs> but Gregor, I heard from him recently, actually, because he wrote an extraordinary film script at one point, which featured this character M. Um, it never, you know, went further than a treatment, but it was really engaging. That, and um, he was uh, 
Yeah, quite a character, I have to say. I mean, I, I read that he saw pop music as a vehicle for propaganda. And yes. obviously that clearly had some form of impact on you. Yeah, well, I was, um, I was, yeah, I was kind of impressed in the sense that um, what was, you know, for me, the ultimately, um, ultimately a, a commercial um, production, but it was open to interpretation on so many levels. I just found that quite extraordinary. And that was something that affected the philosophy of M for you, wasn't it? That was something that really uh, was part of that philosophy. But pop music didn't start off as the electronic track that we know, did it? It had a sort of progress or, or a, a metamorphosis, let's say, into, into what it was. Can you explain that as well? Uh, well, initially, um, I tried it as a kind of, I, it was the genre that I needed, the musical genre. And I needed to really kind of discover something fresh. Well, it started out, the first recording was, it was a kind of rhythm and blues version. And then it well, there was a kind of funk version, if you like, because I had been managing for some time the band Rugulator, which was heavily influenced by James Brown. So I was kind of, you know, obviously, yeah, that made an impression on me, um, albeit I was the manager at the time. So then I tried that version but that did, still didn't seem right and then i went to visit a friend of mine who i'd worked with um previously for some time actually on and off a man called john lewis who was a classical composer and an organist and i knew that he had a small studio in covent garden i think he was actually patronized by Pete Townsend, I think he gave him some financing or something. But John was doing, yeah, he was like in his own bubble, in a niche. He was kind of way ahead in the sense that he was al he'd already engaged with um, sequencing, which was pretty rare, that technology at that time, apart from maybe Cologne Radio with Stockhouse and, or um, obviously Kraftwerk. Anyway, so I went to pay him a visit and I said, look, I've got this idea for a song and I still don't have a direction musically, but, you know, can we kick the idea around and could you perhaps come up with, um, you know, a possible means of um, translating what I'm trying to do here? So I'd give him ideas and he would then interpolate that and... Uh, We've just worked on an eight track and with sequences and just did the basis of the track. And he was, you know, responsible for arranging the, um, the polyphony or the, the counterpoint in the track, which gave it that unusual kind of quality harmonically. So, yeah, we recorded that on an eight track. And I took the eight track back to Paris and hunted around for a studio that had both an eight track and a 24 track. So I could transfer it to a 24 track. Once I'd done that, I went back into the studio and then 
brought in live musicians to complement what was there, you know, at the with the um, electronic foundation. And that's when I found Wally Badaru, and I <clears throat> there were a couple of members of the band which I was managing, Rugulator. One was my brother, and one was a friend. And uh, that's how I built the track. I mean, you mentioned um, Stockhausen and Kraftwerk. Kraftwerk, of course, from Dusseldorf. I live in Cologne. It's where you're seeing me now. And you were in St Cologne. For some yeah. reason, I thought you were in the States. I don't know why. No, no I'm in Cologne. And, um, of course, the, the, the radio that you mentioned, which was really fascinating because it was such an experimental radio station that it used to, when it first went out, it received so many complaints because people thought that the signal had been corrupted rather than they oh, were right. actually playing music, which was really fascinating. Um, were, were you were you uh, aware, were you very aware of Stockhausen, of Cannes, of, of Kraftwerk, that music that uh, came from this area during that era? Oh, well, absolutely. I was into, for a long time, prior to being a singer-songwriter, I was interested in avant-garde, experimental music in the classical field if you like but not um not easily defined and i've you know i was interested again those kind of the musical revolution that had been taking place with technology coming into play and uh, i mean indeed it was interesting that i mean stockhouse was the the first he gave the first example of um, multi-track quadraphonic music. I mean, in his piece, Contactor, I don't know if you know that, which um, is extraordinary in performance, which he very cleverly engineered a way to split a piece into four channels by rotating the table with four microphones. And it was quite amazing reading about all this, but then actually hearing and seeing it in performance I remember that in, in London. It was just amazing. But I, all those composers, whether it was Edgar Varese or, um, I mean, there were so many people that were sort of breaking ground, which weren't really considered serious classical composers, but um, they had um, they had the imagination to move the boundaries of what we considered music. I was just fascinated by these people and the sort of, left field of classical music. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And I was very much drawn to that as um, 
when I kind of went on my own journey of discovering what I might be able to contribute in my small way. <laughs> um, well, the other thing about, you know, the, 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 you've got the video for, for Pop Music, which is directed by Brian Grant. Um, you've got this whole concept um, in, this, in this song. And I think that's why it was so impactful um, because it wasn't just um, uh, the music and that it was uh, obviously, you know, on, on a very basic level, a catchy tune. It had a depth and an, and, and an impact because of this whole concept, the sort of businessman. It's almost like the MTV beginnings in a sense. And I was a presenter on MTV in Europe for many years. And it was very much seen as one of the most impactful um, videos that that uh, been made, and because also musically and the presentation of it in this sort of business style, in the commercialism of of, of music, um, how aware were you before you released that track that you had something that would be a worldwide massive song that would last forever, in a sense? Yeah. Were um, you aware at all? Well, you know. Um... <laughs> One's free to dream, but I, I didn't really, I was just so kind of focused on what I was doing. I just wanted to put something together that to my ear, there was no room for anything, no padding. It had to be very functional. It had to be very clear, clean and uh, focused musically. Uh, it's very hard to sort of kind of describe clearly what I mean by that, but um I wanted to, I wanted it to be a departure from everything that had been typical in the mainstream popular music. But at the same time, I wanted it to embrace of all, all of that as well, because that's what I was brought up on. So for me, it was like, um, I used to think, well, okay, 54 was the moment when rock and roll kind of hit the vinyl. And in 79, I thought it's 25 years. So maybe I could sort of, it could be like a homage, homage, you know, to my experience, my journey through popular music at that time. So I was trying to incorporate everything in there, but doing it in not such an obvious way, but um, subtly just alluding to all the influences and that have kind of reached out to me in, in, music, popular music. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. The success was enormous of this track. I mean, absolutely phenomenal. And it must have had um, a huge impact on your life. And many artists um, believe that success is going to, you know, completely change their life in a positive way. But there can be a positive aspect and there can be a negative aspect to that sort of enormous success that happens very quickly. What what do you remember about that time in terms of what it gave you and what it took away? Um, it gave me, obviously, um, the opportunity to explore anything creatively. But it was, you know, the expectations and certainly from 
you know, the record label. They just wanted me to kind of get into a sort of formulaic, repetitious kind of delivery of um, music and, um, yeah, basically give them the, the turnover that is essential to a label as a commercial success was what they were concerned with. Um, I just felt been there, done that. So now I want to go and <laughs> look at all the other sort of uh, areas of music that interest me. And I just chose to really, I, well, I had the freedom and I felt I had the right to kind of explore any other avenue that I was interested in. I didn't really want to be typecast or stereotyped in any particular genre. So that was that was good. But the, the downside was that the expectation was to for me to repeat myself. And I just thought, well, the point that I was making, it really couldn't be made more than once. Yeah. And also that success means different things to different people, doesn't it? I mean, uh, I, I was a, a successful TV presenter at one stage, but very unhappy and something that I didn't really enjoy. Right. Ended right. up being a screenwriter, which is something that, that fulfills me um, and something that I feel much closer to. And it's my own creativity. Mm. You uh, created something which was a you know enormous success. And then it's the realization that actually this isn't what I necessarily want to do or repeat but I want to go somewhere else and follow that path of also getting new input and change. So I just wonder how you define um, success from today's perspective. Success then was definitely um, perceived as being commercial success, you know, like kind of, you know, I don't know, footballers' wives, I don't know why that comes to mind. But, um now I think uh, success is being comfortable with yourself and knowing yourself and um, not letting um, now this is not I'm not sounding like I don't want to sound like a control freak but basically what I think is the most precious thing of all is to make the decisions that you feel intuitively are meaningful for you with the precious time that you have or that we all have and if you can that should be the reward in itself to be able to be able to do that which you love the most and um you know the the spin-off yeah i mean there may well be sort of uh, some commercial return that is is useful or attractive so that you can perhaps be in a situation where you can kind of um, invest those resources into others who are like-minded and work together, this kind of thing. But, um, yeah, I think success is a strange word when you think about it. It's, you know, there can be simple things in life that can make you feel successful. Do you it doesn't feel that have to be on a public scale. It doesn't have to be on a worldwide scale. <laughs> I didn't. I, I had no idea really what I was letting myself in for, but I, I enjoyed actually putting work together as I do now. Actually, I'm, I'm what I'm working on now. I'm enjoying it exactly the same way. I'm starting to feel 
comfortable with what I'm doing, that it's, you know, I'm not doing it. There, there has, the point is I'm still discovering and that's what I was doing then. And that's what I was so absorbed in. I didn't have any kind of aspirations to, um, to be heard by so many people so many times for so long. That wasn't the plan. <laughs> I wanted to share what I was doing for sure. And I, but it could have been, you know, 10 people. It could have been 10,000 people. It didn't really matter as long as there were, as long as somebody was listening. That was good. Do you feel that you received the credit for what um, you achieved back then in terms of actually defining uh, an era and you know I mean I was listening to a modern man and I was thinking wow Duran Duran listened to that you know what I mean it was like it's there's so many aspects of your work which you see in other people's work that came later and uh, and in terms of the concept the visual style everything um, and I just wonder whether you feel that you receive the credit that you really deserve because a lot of artists seem to receive that later in life rather than at the time. Um well, it's interesting that uh, I think the moment when I felt any sense of uh, recognition was actually when I was approached by Yuichi Sakamoto um, and he had listened to Official Secrets. And then he sent me his album B2 Unit, I think it was, Yellow Magic Orchestra. And he said, you know, I'd really like to work with you. And I said, well, actually, you know, I'm listening to your album now and it's intriguing me. So, yeah, let's do that. So it was kind of that sort of feedback at that point where I, yeah, that was hugely rewarding to have another artist to kind of engage and feel um, that, you know, we were, we had something in common and we could actually collaborate. I mean, equally so when, you know, just going back to David again, you know, how he sort of kept, we kept crossing paths. And when he rang up, I was working in Montreux at Queen's Studio and said, can I come down? I said, yeah, absolutely. So it was that sense of feedback from people, I suppose, where there's a kind of mutual sort of respect. That's, that's really nice. And yeah, you also so, worked with Andy Gill, didn't you? you? You worked with artists that were on the cutting edge of of electronic music and i think that's really um inspiring to see that you went from something that was extremely commercial to then take risks and go in a different direction again well that's interesting you say that i mean that that's that's very um that's very helpful because <laughs> i guess that's where I was at, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. I thought more than ever I should take risks now because I can afford to, you know, why not? Why is, you know, why not kind of um, engage working with people who um, may be lesser known, but in my view, they have so much to offer because they are quite radical. I mean, I was always attracted to sort of radical personalities anyway, and that's probably why, you know, going back to Malcolm, that's why the, there was a connection there. I mean, you mentioned earlier about what you're doing today, and do you feel that you're um, radical and still inspired uh, and today in terms of 
uh, what you're doing because it's you know it sounds like you're doing extreme amount in the next you know this year and next year it's what's planned um and uh that you are in a sense um reaching another phase of your life where you can do what you want but you can also bring it back into the public domain so uh, how do you feel about your your work and how is it inspiring you today oh i <clears throat> i feel it's uh well, I do feel very fortunate for some reason, BMG are just kind of, well, on account of there are two or three characters there, really kind of the, uh, yeah, the, the support and um, encouragement. Um, I mean, they leave me completely to my own resources or devices when it comes to what I'm actually doing, but um, they are being very constructive and they have a strategy. And I feel that the support is there quite genuinely to open up and if you like um not feel um in any way incapable of um doing something worthwhile and that's um you know i take what i'm doing right have you heard any of the new material at all yeah absolutely i was listening to break the silence uh baby close the window i mean i know that you've been working on this well, new material baby also, close the window goes back to 82 that's pretty old oh yeah okay but that's something that you found break from the back silence, yeah break the silence is kind of for me is the first sort of um uh, yeah it's a kind of seminal statement in a way isn't it because like yeah. you know it's been a while that I've been, I sort of feel that I've kind of, uh, I'm not back where I was, but I'm kind of going forward in the same spirit, which um, is perhaps a, a kind of fusion of everything that um, has gone before. But I, I can, I kind of understand more clearly now. I've got the sort of, the period that um, people have been so obsessed with in perspective, and I'm not daunted by it. I'm not overcome by it. And I, I feel that what I'm doing now has, um, yeah, it's it's relevant to me. And if, if that's where it's all got to begin, if you feel comfortable with it, then others will too. So was there a period? What did you make of Break the Silence? Tell me. I love that track, actually. I thought it was brilliant. And it feels it feels really modern, but it also has some you know bits of the past in it do you do know what i mean it's like yes, got, that, yeah. got that connection um i obviously because of you know this massive hit back then there there probably was a period where you felt that you were carrying this heavy load of the past do you know what i mean i've i've experienced it myself being a tv presenter that people recognize me 20 years or 30 years after i left and yeah. I'm still connected to MTV. And that yeah. for me is nothing to do with me. You know what I mean? It's right. my, it's a long time ago. You know, I love interviewing people, but it's MTV is irrelevant in my life. I am a screenwriter essentially. And I see myself in a very different way than other people may see me who, you know, the few people that recognize me. For you with this, you know, this world hit, I mean, it's a very different to my experience. This massive world hit, it, is at one point going to be a sort of, for the audience, a defining moment in their lives? 
that becomes a defining moment in your life that you may not want to carry your whole life. It's no, I, I feel, I've kind of sort of, um, I'm not quite, I'm, I'm not attached to it as other people are, but I'm really flattered by the fact that um, it. you said, you know, a lot of people when they say, I remember exactly where I was when I heard it. And I know that feeling because I have that with a lot of songs too. And that in itself is 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 it's it's very flattering to have an impact on, you know, one's somebody's personal journey and their development. Um, it's yeah, I suppose for a period it sort of felt, kind of felt sort of a little bit overwhelming, um, but it is just extraordinary that like you know here we are as a crisis forty years, forty four years later. And uh, it still continues to receive so much attention, which is great. Well, I see that. Once I used to see it as a bit of a passport, but now I just see it as something which has, you know, it's, it's, it's there in the public consciousness as much as it is in mine. And it reminds me if, that if one makes a truthful kind of, creative gesture um it can be received and shared with a lot of people and i guess um it's interesting when coincidences start to happen or you know sort of kind of what is it what's that you know you make plans and then life gets in the way but conversely you know you don't make plans and life happens it's just <laughs> and it's, it's really interesting how i mean this track, this this track, which is about to be released in June, Break the Silence. I mean, it came up in, yeah, there's a lot of material which I've got which came up in the lockdown period. I developed, you know, ideas, and some of them are more progressive than others. And this was one of them. I didn't really think about it. I didn't really plan it. But it suddenly it becomes so appropriate. And that's um, really quite interesting. And I just think that that's... I'm I'm very much in favour of, of chance. I just think chance is a great thing. Um, there there can be some bad accidents, but there you go. But it's really interesting this morning. I mean, you know, like um, somebody else who um, I spent uh, had the the pleasure of spending time with on several occasions was Tina Turner, and um, yeah, I mean, you know, Helen told me. Um, Yesterday, I was just really quite, you know, shocked. And suddenly, um, I go back to those occasions when we spent time together. And um, because I almost produced some material for her, but it didn't happen. It was the time when Roger, I can't remember his second name. Davis. Roger Davis. Yeah, he, he stepped in to, to organise her career. And there was one song in particular, and they thought maybe, you know, Robin would do some kind of pop music on it, you know. When her, um, her album was being discussed and, as you say, producers, so forth, so on, um, we went into rehearsal together and I, I put together a band because what I was had in my mind, you see, was really, they were looking for the kind of electro kind of production or whatever, going down that route of, for obvious reasons. And I was thinking a real band, you know, so... I put this band together of players and we went into a small studio and um, started routining material together. And then afterwards we went off and had a meal and, you know, I just 
I loved her, just a lovely person, got on with her very well. Um, but it didn't didn't happen. The it take was, on that, <clears throat> excuse me, was that, oh, he's not doing his electronic thing. We don't want to go down the band route. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. You mentioned that BMG have a strategy uh, in terms of, of working with you, which is clearly about um, connecting the past to the present as yeah. well. So so bringing that back. And also, you know, I, as I said, that baby closed the window and you said yeah, that was a, a previously unreleased track from, I think, That's 81. Right. Um, are... Are you looking and at your sort of back catalogue of work that may be unreleased or things that you've recorded back then? And how is that affecting you? Because I think if you if you look back and you hear things from the past, it can have a sort of an impact on you personally. Oh, yeah. Well, let's let's just deal with this. Um, it's very interesting because the guy that um, kicked all this off, a guy called Stuart Patterson at um, BMG, his title is Catalog Optimization. I love that title. <laughs> so, in other words, his responsibility is to come up with any means um, or way of possibly mining what catalog they have um, to um, uh, generate, I suppose, you know, new income for copyrights which they've invested in. And um, he got in contact with me one day and he said, um, hello, my name's Stuart. And, um, you know, I, can you tell me, is the original seven inch on Spotify? And I said, I'm not entirely sure. But then I looked into it and I realized that um, the one which is the mix that's what it was, because it was a yeah, kind of remix. In fact, it was it wasn't there wasn't any multi-track involved. It was a guy called Nick Lorne, who was um uh basically an assistant to Dennis Blackham, who was a cutting engineer who cut my material. And Nick very cleverly, overnight, he took a quarter inch of the original seven inch and with very limited technology turned it into a 12 inch which was the one which we had, you know, had a double groove and it was, you know, known for that. Anyway, so that's the, the track that has been shared on so many playlists with Spotify and I don't know, 12 or 13 million plays or something, you know, which is great. And but Stuart said to me, he said, as far as I can tell, the seven inch was never uploaded to the DSPs. And I said, yeah, you could be right. So he said, well, can I look into this? I said, yeah, sure. Okay. So that was the beginning. And um, sure enough, um, so they wanted to do, you know, put that up initially. And then we got chatting and uh, I said, um, oh, by the way, I've come across something which was never released. You know, do you want to hear it? And I said, yeah, sure. So I sent over, that was Baby Closed Window. And he said they really liked it at the office and we sent it to um, our office in New York and they really like it too, you know. Can we, you know, can we do an official release on it? Anyway, so since then, he's been, 
educating me on the possibilities of doing this, that, or the other with, okay, the existing catalogue. Um, it all became a bit pop music obsessive. <laughs> so, and then his, this was all planned for release last year. And then he came back and he said, look, we've been talking to marketing. We've been thinking, would you be interested in record store day? And I said, well, what's that? I don't know anything about it. He explained it to me and said, well, if you are, we'd want to put it back now, not release it this year, last year, but release it in the spring of 23. And I said, yeah, okay. So he's orchestrated all of that. And then I say, well, look, um, much as I appreciate what you're doing, I'm actually sort of kind of working on current material and would you like to hear something? So I said, break the silence. And he said, wow, this is great. And I said, I said yeah, but you're a back catalogue man. No, you know, no, I, I can sort of, uh, I have a kind of A&R role here, which was... You know, great news. So basically, Stuart is traveling with this all the way. So he has it in mind now to deliver a few singles and then do an album in the kind of traditional way. So now I've seriously got my work cut out for me. <laughs> so, so does catalog optimization also include touring? Well, I tell you what, I mean, that would because like, you know, we're not looking for an album. We're looking for an album early 24. And I would love to do that. And I think I might have the um, the band to do that with. The guy that I've been working with more recently in the last album, which I put out was which was really a reflection of the kind of singer songwriter period. Wing and a prayer. I don't know whether you come across that one. OK. So, um, which was recorded on iPhone, actually, <laughs> that particular track. But anyway, the rest of the album, I prepared in uh, Logic, uh, working alone during the lockdown. Uh, well, no, previous notes, previous to that. But anyway, I put it together and I went to this guy who was working in a shipping container. He had a studio near, in Sussex. And I said, look. I've had enough of working on my own here. I need some feedback and uh, all the tracks are prepared and arranged, but I think it needs live players on it. And he's, his eyes lit up because he's a multi-instrumentalist and also a very clever engineer. And um, so this guy is called Ali Kavan, Gavan. And he has, in my view, um, yeah, he's been sort of a, a, how can I say? Well, I just think he, he is somebody that I would certainly involve in this this project. He's um, an unconventional musician. He's a musician producer. He's, he's got all of those things. And I haven't deliberately sort of surrounded myself with people like that. They're just popping up now. And there's somebody else that I'd like. And also, he's a producer engineer working in Brighton and um, I'm going to approach him I'm going to give him some multi-tracks to do some remixes and stuff and he might be interested in playing live people that I would have liked to also involve like you know people like Wally Badaru but he won't play live at all he never did want to so that's the end of that um, but there are people out there and certainly if I can put the right team together yeah I'd love to perform live and uh, it would be very satisfying to be performing new material. The one thing about 
when I had when I was touring and uh, chasing that video around the planet, I was doing you know these um, playback presentations on TV, miming, and I hated it. I hated it with a vengeance. I wanted to sing live, you know. So yes, I'd really like to do that. So uh, and I would hope that by then, if I have a body of work, which is, you know, contemporary stuff, and of course I'd, you know, reflect on the cat optimizing the catalogue. Um, <laughs> I would like to put, I'd love to put that together. I'd love to do it, but I, I, my heart has to be in it, you see. It was a fantastic experience when I did that first rewind occasion, you know, 10,000 people, and they just went potty, you know, when I performed. Uh, it was, yeah, it was a great experience. I'm meeting some of those people afterwards who were just so, yeah, so loving and respectful, you know, just, God, it's great, you know, to have a live, you know, connection with people. So, yeah, playing live, fantastic. But I don't just want to do that song. So to answer your question, would I perform live? Uh, yes, definitely. If I got my feet firmly back on the ground and I feel that, what I'm offering now uh, in terms of content material, whatever, if it's getting, you know, making all the right noises, yes, I'm pretty energetic. <laughs> I'm out on my bike every day. But, <laughs> and I'm sure I could handle um, uh, the aspect of traveling, but I do like things to be quite organized. I like to be able to focus myself on what needs to be done. You know, I don't want to be distracted with, what do you mean we haven't got a hotel? What, what's happened with the truck? I don't want all that stuff. I've been there, done that, did that for another band, you know. I don't want to do it for myself. So, um, well, yeah. I think I think you've got a catalogue optimizer, so I think there will also be a, <laughs> be a hotel optimizer. I've got to go, so I'm going to say, Robin Scott M. Thank you so much. I loved it when you said that you were on stage and you got the love and respect um, from the audience because you have love and respect from me and I'm sure from so many people in the world well, for what you, so you have achieved and your contribution to popular culture. So Robin Scott, thank you. At Sleep Outfitters Outlet, great sleep is a big deal. Save 40 to 60% every day on every Sealy, Stearns & Foster, and Tempur-Pedic. Queens as low as $249. Customer exchanges, closeouts, and floor samples. Inventory changes daily, so come in for your dream deal today. With no credit needed financing, expert advice, and up to 60% off retail, it's never been easier to get the sleep and savings you deserve. Go to sleepoutfittersoutlet.com for financing details and to find a store near you. We made USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com slash bundle. USAA. Restrictions apply. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.